in in my sort of looking all over Pakistan rules, Sindh is a bit different from the rest of rural uh, Pakistan. I think religiosity plays less of a role in rural spins uh, since especially. Um, I think so. Their aspirations. I think like all people, I think uh, earning money is a big aspiration. But uh, I think usually what happens is uh, so. Of course, there are Sindhis um, that of course go to sort of urban areas to earn some money. But of course, uh, there is, of course, this stereotype as well that Sindhis are lazy. But I think they have this sort of love for the land as well. So, for example, when they come to Karachi and try to earn more money, I think Karachi can be very brutal uh, in terms of sort of its capitalistic output, like um, employers wanting to sort of um, squeeze the last drop of sweat. And they then think, well, it was our life in the village better than the life that we are living here, even though we are earning a bit more money? And so I think uh, they sort of then tend to come back. But of course, I think like all people in sort of um, in any society, I think um, one thing is definitely that they would make want to make their uh, living conditions better. Whether Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. Agriculture is a major source of employment in Pakistan, but it has been facing a secular decline for a number of years, if not decades. What is holding this sector back, and how does the political economy function in parts of rural Pakistan? To talk about these topics and have a deep dive into what ails the agricultural sector in Pakistan, I have with me Dr. Mushtaba Isani. Dr. Isani is a political scientist with a PhD in political science from the University of Munster. He is currently an assistant professor of international relations at the King Fahd University in Saudi Arabia. Before that, he was an assistant professor of politics and policy at the Habib University in Karachi. Dr. Isani, welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you. Thank you, Zair. It's so nice I want to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you because this is a topic I've been thinking about covering for a long time. And from what I know, your research broadly tries to answer the question about why the agricultural sector in Sindh in particular, uh, with some relevance to the rest of Pakistan, has been stagnant or actually receding in the past two decades. Uh, tell us a bit about your research and what you find, what you found about what is ailing the agricultural sector, particularly in Sindh uh, and rural Sindh in the province, uh, and what does that mean for the rest of the country? Yes. So I think my research focuses mainly on Sindh, but I think it is generalizable to the rest of Pakistan as well, because I think I've been at conferences in other provinces in Pakistan. And there, like people told me that the situation is Sindh is very similar, even though the systems are a bit different, but the situation is very similar in the other provinces as well. So I think Perhaps surprisingly, um, uh, I think in my research, I find out that one of the major reasons why uh, the agricultural sector is um, facing a lot of difficulties in Sindh is because of, uh, you could say, a lack of governance, is that the state is keeping back. And I think one thing that I find out in my research was that, um, that the state 
has not been able to sort of protect uh, property rights of citizens. So usually what happens is, uh, is that there is a lot of land grabbing and very sort of powerful, you could say criminals supported by politicians. Um, they usually um, allow for uh, what we call in Urdu kabzas, um, and, um, and so this land grabbing is very common. So what happens is that usually people are very afraid to invest in the property sector um, in sin, especially in rural sin, um, because they're afraid that one day um, uh, their land might be grabbed by some criminal elements. Um, and usually like the court system is usually um, supposed to provide legal remedies, but often as you know, the courts in, in Pakistan, especially in the rural areas of sin, the cases take years and years and years. And I, in my case study, for example, I looked at like a, a case in which the land was grabbed and then it went to the courts. It wasn't been able to, it wasn't, this dispute wasn't solved to the courts. The parties went to like a FESLO, which is um, a local sort of dispute resolution mechanism. There was a FESLO, uh, but even after that, the dispute wasn't resolved uh, because there's this problem of who would sort of, who would ensure that um, that the FESLO is actually implemented and there's this problem of implementation. Um, and because of these, um, it takes years and years and years for these disputes to carry on. And people are just afraid to invest in such, um, in such a situation. There are other factors as well, but this was one of the major factors that I saw um, in my research. So essentially what I hear from you is, you know, obviously modern agriculture requires a lot of capital investment. It requires mechanization. Um, it requires in most parts of the world bank financing now because of the need of mechanization and capital investment. And what you're saying is that the underlying asset essentially, in this case, the land on which you're going to grow stuff um, is not secure. And so it can be criminal elements associated with feudals, associated with political parties, can grab that land for whatever reason as they please. Um, and now you're stuck in a long drawn out legal process. Um, and so to avoid all of this in the first place, the investor is not going to look at this piece of land. And even if he or she does, the bank that is supposed to provide them the financing may not be too keen or uh, be right. willing to give a decent rate of interest on it for you to finance this. And that essentially broadly is why we haven't seen a lot of investment in, in modernization in rural agriculture. Yes, and I, I will be talking more about inshallah feudalism and sort of also mechanization because so there, there were different modes of how agriculture is, is carried out in sin and I'll expand on it um, a bit later. But on your point, yes, I think uh, one of the major reasons um, is that yeah, people from the outside, from the cities where, for example, capital in Sindh is concentrated in Karachi, a, a businessman for, uh, in Karachi would be very, very, very hesitant in investing in rural Sindh, just because he knows like, uh, what, what would happen if tomorrow my land is grabbed, what, who would come to my rescue. And they know that there are a lot of criminal elements, which, of course, um, We'll talk about feudalism later, but which you in normal lingo are called like these feudal elements, which can um, which can help in this sort of these criminal elements to grab land. Um, so I think yes. So there's a 
is there's a big um, fear of investing in the rural countryside. Um, if you want me to talk about more about the modes of how agriculture is uh, carried out in in rural sin, I can talk more. No, about let's that. let's talk about that because the you know uh, would love to hear your analysis on how the sector works as a whole in in rural sin in particular because that connects us then to the conversation I want to have with you is on feudalism. But you know, right. let's explore how does it work and uh, more importantly, like I wanna I want you to touch upon the dynamics between uh, the people who work the land and the people who own the land in particular right. in sin, but like the concept of sharecropping and uh, benefiting from the, the crop that is coming out of this land and the richness of the soil and how does that impact the local economy? Right. So I think this ties into the, con uh, in, in, into the conversation as to what feudalism in the Sindhi context or in the Pakistani context really is. So basically, I think in the classical sort of Marxist sense, feudalism was this like the king granted feudals land and they expected the tenants to pay a particular rent on this land. Um, in Sindh, however, uh, I think so there are three major forms of sort of how agriculture is carried out in Sindh. One, the old system is the Hari system, which is basically, as you said, a sharecropping system. Um, so uh, the landowner is required to provide stuff like ag agriculture, water, etc. Um, and the tenants uh, who are led by kamdars or, um, and then they have other workers that are called Kurmi, etc. So they work on the land. Um, and then the profits are shared 50-50. So that's one system, which is the Hari system. Uh, the other system um, is also like, which you might be more aware of, is the Teka system. Uh, so a lot of times, uh, landlords give their land on Teka. So they uh, give their land, which is basically a rent, uh, mm -hmm. which they say that uh, we'll give you a land and this is how much money we want in a year or in six months. Um, the third system that is prevalent there um, is, um, is that the, it's sort of more modernized is that the landowner employs people. And this is mostly in like food farms or farms that have sort of more sort of um, expensive crops. So usually the landowner would employ people that work on their land. Um, and pay them salaries and, of course, take the whole profit at the end. But um, in, in sort of the feudalistic sense, what we're talking about in Sindh is the system of sharecropping, uh, which is a 50-50 divide. Uh, I, I will talk more about, inshallah, about feudalism, but I hope that answers your question. Yeah, and so how just... Sort of Agriculture works in yes, uh, but a quick quick question on that. So you said the profits are divided 50-50. Can you elaborate on how does that actually work? And if it actually is a fair 50-50 divide, but you know, obviously that is also linked to property rights, right? Are, are, are the workers, the Haris on that land actually getting what is owed to them in a fair and transparent manner or is there other stuff going on within that system as well yeah in my field experience actually they do get the 50 50. actually sometimes because usually the landowners are pretty big so we're talking about um bigger landowners so in in in, in Sindh, um a big landowner would be considered anyone who's owning more than 100 acres land till like families that own 30,000 acres of land. Um, so usually also when the crop is bad, 
maybe the landover gives more to the Haris as well. Um, but usually it does, uh, the 50-50 system does work if the landowner works on a 50-50 system. But usually, of course, there are sometimes, of course, there are cases in Sindh in which uh, there is this bonded labor as well, unfortunately, sometimes when, for example, um, the Haris or workers take loan um, and they have to pay exorbitant interests and then they are, uh, there's also bonded labor. Uh, there are situations that I think usually that's exaggerated. I think the Hari system does work mostly into the 50-50, but there are situations where there is this uh, bonded labor type of situation as well. So what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is, from your experience, property rights are at the core of the issue. There is um, uh, an issue in terms of bonded labor and sharecropping that prevents modernization to happen, although some farms are now beginning to pay wages and, and becoming more corporatized, so to speak. Um, how broadly do you see um, this analysis fitting into the broader agricultural sector of Pakistan, whether it's in southern Punjab or Punjab or parts of KP. Um, is this something that is unique to what's going on in Sindh and therefore needs a Sindh-specific set of reforms? Or do you think property rights as a whole and, and reforming that part of the agricultural system to, to improve property rights is, is the need across the country? Okay, so I think Sindh will be very similar to southern Punjab, where there are also big landowners, but property rights is an issue all over Pakistan. So I was presenting at the University of Peshawar in KPK, um, and there too, they, people just came up and they said, we were also involved in this FESLO, like there they have the Jirga system, which is a bit different, Similar, but a bit, a bit different, but that also continued for long. It, the, even the Jirgas system didn't work there. Um, and so um, it was a problem there, even in, in the Punjab, in northern Punjab, um, even very, very sort of influential personalities, their land has been grabbed by criminal elements, supported by politicians, which is usually the case. Um, and so these property rights remain a big problem. I, I'll also tell you that, so usually in Pakistan, as you know, the mentality is they look up to the armed forces or the rangers to come in when uh, there is this sort of property rights dispute. That's also and, a means of a uh, different mechanism of FESLO, essentially. Yeah, yes. And I, I can tell you from the experiences that I've uh, I had during my field work is that the rangers and the army also don't come in like that. So unless they have like a personal interest there or the situation is has become really, really big. Right. For like small disputes by small, even if the dispute is like 200, 250 acres, the rangers won't bother to come unless, of course, it's become big. Maybe it's gathered sort of a lot of media attention or like uh, hundreds of people have been killed, then they will come in. So basically, uh, the state is is very limited. And sometimes, of course, I'm saying when politicians or the local police involved, the state is actually involved in the land grabbing. And that's usually the case as well. Um, and so uh, basically, um, there is this idea of state within state, um, especially when it comes to these land grabbers, etc. Um, um, and sort of, uh, sorry, these headphones are sort of causing me trouble. So I'll take them no, off. That's if that's, if yeah, right. that's fine. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think, um, so 
as I said, the army and the rangers um, are also um, not intervening in these land disputes uh, unless it becomes really, really big. Um, and so I think this is a big, big problem. And even if we're talking about foreign investment, which is now starting to come in in the agriculture sector of Pakistan, I can talk more about that as well. Uh, they are also sort of worried about uh, these problems that they might face in investing in Pakistan. Yeah, and the army uh, rangers point is important, right? Because even they've gotten into trouble, such as, I think you're right, like uh, their own interest because of the Okara Farms issue that has been going on for years now. Lots of claims about violence and uh, oppression and intimidation. So there is, again, that's also linked to weak property rights the way, at least as far as I see it, based on the information you've shared. Um, so I want to quickly... Um, talk about now in terms of the role of feudalism in Sindhi society. And the reason why I want to dive into it, because my sense is that it is at the heart of the weak property rights issue in Pakistan, in Sindh, in Southern Punjab and elsewhere, but also because there is this view that among many Pakistanis um, that if only we had land reforms, agricultural problems would be solved. And my view, based on what you're sharing, is that even if you did land reforms, if property rights enforcement is weak um, yes. and it is still at its core of feudal society, then land grabbing will happen. So you will have a reversal of these reforms, at least. Is that a fair perspective to have? Um, and then, you know, that's the first question. But then secondly, and more importantly, like how does feudalism work uh, and affect the economy of rural sin? So I think, so two parts. I think first, as I said, feudalism, it's not feudalism in the classical sense. It's mostly sort of this idea of sharecropping. So like feudalism is sort of a misnomer. But I, as, as you've rightly pointed out, I think, um, is that I think the problem is not like this feudalism because actually like land holding in this sense doesn't determine feudalism. So um, Basically, you can have criminal elements popping up that previously didn't hold a lot of land, right? Um, and, um, and usually these criminal elements that even if they're not feudals, they're still involved in land grabbing, kidnappings and killings. Um, so I think feudalism is perhaps not the best way of describe, to describe it. But usually in, when we're talking about like usual lingo in, um, in, in sort of the Sindh province, feudalism is associated with everything that's going bad in, in the rural Sindh area. Um, and, um, and I just want to give you sort of, so, sort of link it to politics as well here, because um, as you see, like, if you see the election results in, in Sindh, for example, in, uh, in the previous elections, huge, large landholders lost elections. So the Jatoi's lost from Norshero Feroz, um, um, Pir Pagara's, party um, lost from Khairpur and Sangar. Uh, so what I want to show from like uh, from this sort of discussion is that land holding in and of itself does not determine uh, whether this sort of feudalism is taking place or not. Um, I think the bigger problem here is um, the state um, not being able to assert its authority and not being able to enforce property rights. Um, 
we can talk more about the politics of sin also a bit later. But I think, um, yeah, I think feudalism is a bit of a misnomer. I think the problem is that either the state is involved in these things or it cannot enforce um, its uh, writ. So that's interesting because I agree that feudalism is sort of the catch-all bucket that everyone throws all the problems into and say that's the that's the issue without ever having a real understanding of what the feudal structure is of society, how it intersects with the economy and the politics. But, you know, based on what you said, someone, people may argue and push back and say, well, the state is not asserting its authority because the political leaders coming out of rules and actually are not incentivized to do this because they are the ones who are, that person might argue, that they are the ones who are involved in criminal activities and with criminal elements to grab lands. Is that a fair perspective to have? Like, why is it that the state is unable to enforce the authority? Because, you know, Sindhis have been voting a certain way and this problem remains. So how does the, the ability of this or the weakness of the state intersect with how the politics of this region function? So I think this is, again, a very fascinating question because I am... I usually see that um, people vote in sin to gain protection from the state. So I think one thing that happens is they're voting for a politician because they want police protection or something. Uh, uh, they're usually uh, voting because this Thana culture that maybe that uh, politician will save them from the Thana, etc. So usually, as you're saying, that in this case, the state is involved. Mostly so the politicians are involved with these um, um, criminal elements. Um, and, and the system has become such uh, that, um, that it sort of incentivizes um, uh, such politics in sin. Um, um, and so, yes, I think um, uh, this, the state, as we see it right now, with the politics and the police that's involved, I think uh, that is either uh, partly uh, involved in this uh, criminal activities or um, is it cannot uh, control it. That's interesting again because it's, it's this view, right, growing up in Karachi and you still hear it on social media is that, you know, Sindhi voters, rural Sindhi voters don't understand democracy and they keep voting in the same corrupt leaders and the same corrupt politicians and landlords um, that have done nothing for their benefit. When in fact, based on what you're describing, the choice to vote is actually a very rational and logical choice, which is that I know this person is powerful and they're involved with a lot of stuff. By me agreeing to give them more power, i.e. a provincial assembly seat or a national assembly seat that may allow them to form or enter government or what have you, um, they may get off my back and stop harassing me at the local community level. So actually, from a Sindhi voters mindset perspective, it's a very rational choice. Would you agree? Yes, I think it's very rational as well. So usually also what happens is I think this idea of why don't they vote for someone else, because I think there is a lack of choice. So they haven't, even if they're getting a little benefit from the politician, which might be some kind of job, maybe, I don't know, even a thousand rupees from the BIS fee, now called the SRS program, even if they're getting a little benefit, they don't want to lose that very little benefit that they're getting uh, by voting for this politician. And if 
there are a lack of alternatives. Like, so the PTA hasn't performed in Sindh, of course. Uh, the, G the GDA doesn't seem the best alternative. It's probably a similar alternative. And this is providing them this little benefit. And they keep on voting for this sort of little benefit that they're getting. So unless they see like um, a change um, in the sense that they see someone else performing, it's likely they would not change their vote. And they'll keep on voting rationally, uh, either because this guy is helping them get out of um, um, the thana, or in English, the police uh, station, or because they're getting this very little benefit. Yeah, from and, the and I think the grassroots point is important, right? Because you have to invest in those local communities at a grassroots level to have the political structure of an alternative that can do or provide the alternative to the FESLO, right? Or the influential solving that problem for them before they actually go out and vote. So it's not as simple as looking at the politics of what's going on in an urban society like Karachi, Lahore, Rawalpindi, etc. Because you know, you may be really popular there, but if you don't have a grassroots presence to signal, in effect, a commitment to that community, then there won't be the incentive to vote for you because when push comes to shove, you won't be there to protect them. And they're not going to come to you, to Karachi, for help. And I think this idea of this grassroots slash party structure, I think this is also one of the factors in why sort of the Pakistan People's Party has been so successful in Sindh, because this sort of election day politics, as we've seen in urban Sindh with the NQM, really matters um, in rural Sindh as well. And uh, because I, in my research, I also found out that I think the biggest uh, vote, uh, why people vote for a certain uh, individual is because of their party label. So if you are on a PPP ticket, that would probably be the single most important factor as to why uh, the person will vote for you. Um, and that's mm -hmm. not only because of like the Bhutto connection, etc. Um, it's because um, of this sort of party structure. It's, it is the strongest party um, in Sindh. Um, and and they, uh, they also think rationally in the sense that they are likely to win and they do not want to vote for a loser. Um, um, and so therefore, uh, it's difficult to see change. That, that's in, so let me ask you this from as an urban urban Pakistani uh, who spent a, basically grew up in urban does not have any connection to rural Pakistan at all. Um, when we look at rural parts of the country, there is always this question about you know why is it that people continue to vote for someone affiliated with the People's Party, right? Because if you've grown up in Karachi, you see the People's Party as the party of corruption, the party of elite capture, what have you. On a, on, I'm generalizing, but on a broad level, you will hear that consistently in a place like Karachi. So when you did your research, like, why is it, like, it just doesn't have, I, I, can, I don't see it as just being a function of, you know, the Bhutto connection or the party being present at the grassroots. Like, what is it that the People's Party does right that the, uh, rural Sindhi voter continues to vote for that label. Okay, so I think one thing that I also want is like, I think that the People's Party is not all corrupt. Like, there are people that are good in it and there are bad people in it. So I think, and there are people that, of course, really work 
for um, their domestic constituencies as well. So there is definitely the service element as well. And I can also tell you, so this sort of feudalism uh, argument that we were having before. Um, so for example, uh, if, I, if I quote to you some politicians that, um, that are in, um, in rural Sindh, and these are not uh, big, so the Jatois losing from their sh at Noshero Feroz, they are probably the biggest feudals of the area, right? And they they lost there. Uh, so, and people in the People's Party, like you can see, like Khushid Shah, Sayyid Khushid Shah is a big politician now in the Sakhar area. He is not from a feudal background. He um, comes from um, sort of, he's, he was previously a lawyer, etc., from a more professional background. And there are other many such examples there that um, that this idea of sort of feudalism does not sort of define or uh, determine whether someone will vote for you. So I think there's definitely a service element. But as I said, I think um, uh, the party label counts a lot. Um, and of course, I think uh, this is, uh, I think these are, uh, this is the party that is most likely thought to win. Uh, I think the voters do not want to be with, usually with the losing party. And usually also, I think there is uh, some kind of benefit that they're getting um, for voting for the PPP. So if, on their part, uh, from the way they're thinking rationally, I think it makes perfect sense for them to vote in the way they do. Um, although, of course, in the urban areas, we might think of it differently. So from your research, again, um, interacting with folks in rural sin, like what have you gathered being on the ground are the aspirations, ambitions, and maybe even fears of the average rural Sindhi, like not someone who comes from a background of privilege, but someone who has been working on the land or their family, you know, has, has deep connections to the land and that's their homeland for decades, if not centuries. Um, what does that younger Sindhi, the non-feudal Sindhi, want to achieve and how do they approach or what is their worldview? Yes, I think so. Uh, can I say something more generally about Pakistan and then about Sindh? So I think, sure. I think rural Sindh is, in, in my sort of looking all over Pakistan, rural Sindh is a bit different from the rest of rural uh, Pakistan. I think religiosity plays less of a role in rural Sindh uh, especially. Um, I think, so their aspirations, I think, like all people, I think uh, earning money is a big aspiration. But uh, I think usually what happens is, uh, so of course there are Sindhis um, that of course go to sort of urban areas to earn some money. But of course, uh, there is of course this stereotype as well that Sindhis are lazy, but I think they have this sort of love for the land as well. So, for example, when they come to Karachi and try to earn more money, I think Karachi can be very brutal uh, in terms of sort of its capitalistic output, like um, employers wanting to sort of um, squeeze the last drop of sweat. And they then think, well, it was our life in the village better than the life that we are living here, even though we are earning a bit more money. And so I think uh, they sort of then tend to come back. But of course, I think like all people in sort of um, in any society, I think um, one thing is definitely that they would make want to make their uh, living conditions better, whether it be um, better housing, better um, uh, ability to buy stuff, 
uh, etc. Um, but like, I think their aspirations are very similar to people in the uh, in the rest of the world. But of course, they f find it difficult to adjust to um, places like Karachi, etc. Mm -hmm. And the, the point around less religiosity or the role of religion, um, why is that the case? Is that something to do with the unique Sufi heritage of the of the people and, and the land? Or is it because the conservative madrasas that have proliferated across Pakistan did not find a, a, a home in Sindhi society? Like what is it that makes them different uh, in terms of their religiosity than other parts of Pakistan? Right. So I think the, the conservative madrasas are there. So there are some madrasas um, sort of scattered around Sindh. But in a general Sindhi village, as compared to a Punjabi village or a village in KPK, etc., um, you wouldn't find uh, the sort of religious imam or the imam of the mosque or any other religious authority um, being able to sort of control the life there. Um, and I think that could perhaps be a, because of the Sufi heritage, but perhaps also because I think generally, generally the land owning class in Sindh has been very secular. Um, and I think they've prevented um, um, the mosque or um, certain other elements to gain that sort of power. Um, I think that's my um, sort of um, maybe anecdotal evidence there. Uh, but um, but I think that's certainly the case. I think people, like when I go to Punjab and everything, uh, or, or KPK, people are afraid, really. They're even afraid sometimes whether uh, they should wear like pant shirt, etc., in the village surrounding. But that's definitely not the case um, in sort of most of uh, rural Sindh. I think that there you'll find a bit of a difference. That's fascinating. Um... Another question, just you know, from my perspective, based on your fieldwork and and research, like what are some other things that you feel that you know mainstream Pakistanis don't really understand about just rural economy in Sindh, or broadly speaking, about rural Pakistan as a whole when when you observe it from your perspective? I think I think uh, when we actually uh, think about uh, the problems Pakistan is facing, I think we generally, generally um, tend to neglect um, uh, the rural countryside, especially in areas like Sindh and Balochistan. I think there, rural Sindh is generally uh, one of the more underdeveloped regions in Sindh, uh, in all of Pakistan. Um, but, but I was saying rural Sindh and especially Balochistan. Um, and so I think here, I think, I think most people know that uh, there is a problem with development um, in, in most of um, uh, rural Sindh, etc. Uh, but I think they are not able to grasp the ground realities there. I think um, perhaps because um, I think life in urban Pakistan um, is very different from then in rural Pakistan. Here, it's not all about, I think, I think in Karachi, there's a lot of sort of um, uh, drive to earn more money. I think, although, as I said, people in rural Sindh also want to earn uh, more money, but I think there it's more about whether they can get the basic necessities of life, uh, which would be healthcare um, and a good living. 
Um, and sometimes I also think that the rule life is a bit better than like life in a place like Karachi because they seem to be more content. Um, you see this, this seem to be because they don't need that much. Um, and sometimes I actually feel sorry for the people um, who um, in, in urban Pakistan uh, with having more, but perhaps not the same level of contentment. And so when we feel really sorry for the people of, um, um, of rural areas, uh, I think uh, we're also not perhaps, uh, perhaps they are getting their um, sort of utility out of other stuff. And that's why you see a lot of Sindhis wanting to go back uh, to their places that they want to come from because perhaps they're liking it more there. Although, of course, there's a need for development. there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, probably one of the things that you don't get in Karachi is clean air and that's something invaluable, right? So if you're from rural Pakistan, you're looking at moving to a city like Karachi or Lahore, you're probably going to say, wait a minute, I can't even, you don't even have access to clean air on a daily basis and probably poisonous air that is what you're breathing. So there are things that are different, but this acute sense of lack of development, um, again, like, is this simply a function of the state not being able to, again, assert itself and, and provide the basic services that are needed? Or is there something else that's going on um, within rules in that has led it to become so, uh, underdeveloped for such a long period of time? Yes, I think the primary uh, thing that came out of my research was that I think the state not being able to assert itself. But of course, I think uh, sometimes the landowners are responsible as well for not allowing um, or not incentivizing people to go to schools, etc., and not investing um, in healthcare facilities. Um, um, etc. But I think I shouldn't give a general statement because I think some big landowners also uh, try to do some things uh, for their populations. Uh, but generally, generally, I think um, I think the state needs to um, sort of come in here because I think uh, although people privately try to do stuff, but I think uh, in this case we definitely need more public goods. Um, there. Um, and I think private enterprise can go uh, and, and provide public goods to a certain extent, but I think the state definitely needs to assert itself more in terms of also ensuring that uh, businesses can flourish um, and um, also trying to provide public goods. And I also want to sort of, so I come uh, from um, District Shikarpur, right? And if you ever read sort of the history books of Shikarpur, Shikarpur used to be a flourishing trade town, um, dominated by um, Sindhi Hindus mostly previously. And so some of these Sindhi Hindus now are top businessmen all over the world, whether in the US and Singapore, also in India. Um, and, um, and we saw, for example, in the previous few years, uh, there were, of course, there still are a lot of Sindhi Hindu families in Shikarpur, but they started migrating from uh, Shikarpur as well. And that was also because uh, they were afraid of these kidnappings. A lot of Sindhi Hindus uh, from um, relatively affluent backgrounds, they're mostly businessmen um, involved in rice trade, etc. Uh, they uh, 
their families or the children started getting kidnapped and they started moving, selling their rice mills, uh, etc. So again, I think the state needs to provide security. Um, and without the state providing sort of these basic functions, I think, um, or trying to fulfill uh, the basic social contract, I think life cannot flourish um, in, in rural sin. Yeah, I think that's the that's the thing, right? Like you can have the private sector step in and a lot of uh, the talk of town and often in Pakistan is public-private partnership it used to be a lot more when, for example, Shabash Sharif was running Punjab. But, you know, if, if there is weak property rights enforcement, then the private sector is not going to want to be a part of a public-private partnership in, in a rural part of Pakistan that's underdeveloped because what happens if the deal goes sour? Um, how do you enforce the contracts? How do you make sure that the investment is flowing consistently, not as just a one-off, right? So those things at least underlie at the, at the very core, like even if you want the private sector to step in and play a bigger role in helping develop parts of the country, um, if they're not going to feel comfortable and confident about the fact that the contracts are going to be enforced, um, then they're not going to do that or demand an excessive rate of return, which will make it unfeasible to do so in the first place. Um, the, the one thing that to me strikes, to me at least as being an opportunity area, right, is that by enforcing or buying, by playing a bigger role in providing these basic services, particularly property rights, um, you can catalyze a lot of investment flow from urban parts, uh, both within Pakistan as well as from outside Pakistan as investment into the rural economy. Um, how feasible do you see um, that happening in the case where property rights are provided? Is this something that broadly speaking would be attractive uh, from an economic opportunity point of view or are there things beyond property rights that also may, may lead to the economy struggling? in the rural parts? So I think, so two things here. So we've seen now investment coming from especially the Gulf states. They usually work with some land owner to buy stuff there and, and the land owner, the big land owners in the area uh, try to um, sort of um, grow a crop they want. For example, they, uh, so, for example, camels eat um, alfalfa or alpha alpha, whatever you want to call it. Um, so we've seen on other crops as well, where there has been some investment coming, but they always have to work with some sort of intermediary, right? That uh, that can guarantee them that nothing will go bad. Um, and usually these um, are large landowners, so there's no sort of direct investment. Everyone's afraid of investing directly. And usually also there are some customs, tribal customs somewhere, other customs developed by landowners that they do not let anyone else buy land in their areas. Um, and usually, um, and so people, even if you buy a land from someone, they're afraid whether this um, landlord will actually be able, uh, will actually allow them to <laughs> grow yeah, crops. They, they may cut um, off your access to water, even if you yes. buy the land. And this, again, I think this is also very, I didn't touch upon this, but I think one thing that is also linked here is that access to resources are also 
are determined by who you know. So if you know someone big politically up or you know someone um, in the bureaucratic structure, you can easily get the water courses diverted. You can easily irrigate your lands. You can easily also clean up uh, these sort of uh, irrigation canals and have them sort of paved or cemented. If you do not have sort of the right connections, all this doesn't happen. So all these resources are unfairly distributed. So if a big um, politician, etc., cetera, um, or a big landowner who has the proper connections, buys land, he can easily sort of uh, develop it. But if a normal person, like even a person from uh, an investor from urban Karachi wants to invest, uh, how will he get access uh, to these resources without um, in a fair manner. I think these are all big, big question marks because again, um, this even like no, usually people you, you think are well-connected, even they sometimes do not get access to stuff like um, like irrigating, uh, um, irrigating the lands and sort of lining the canals, which is very important. Um, the canals need to be cleaned uh, so that water can flow, etc. And this usually is determined by your bureaucratic and political connections. Um, and so it's very difficult for investment to flow in if, um, if you won't get a fair distribution of resources. So it's more, I think it's just to parse out what we've been talking about. So you have weak property rights um, undergirding or hampering the entire system. Um, at the same time, you have the state that is functional in certain parts, in certain ways, but in ways where it, it is functional, it has been captured almost by elite interests, whether they're political, landowning, feudal, what have you. It's not one catch-all feudalism. It's several, it's more complicated than that. And then third, you have uh, a, a set of people who vote in elections and who make a very logical choice to say, I have to make a deal with the devil here. And so I will try to vote for a winner or who someone may be a winner uh, to the extent that by doing so, I might actually be protected uh, from certain issues uh, where the state may actually assert itself in an unfair manner, right? So it's the way I see it coming out of this discussion is that foundationally property rights system and regime is weak. And in areas where it is, the state is capable of intervening it actually plays the role of not a fair arbitrator, but an unfair arbitrator that's been captured uh, by powerful interest groups, whether they may be politically connected, bureaucratically connected or otherwise. Yes, I think you've summarized it really well here. I think uh, that's sort of uh, generally what uh, the crux of sort of what I wanted to explain, I think, yes. Okay. Um, so, so I, I just want to recap that because it is a complex topic and I just want to make sure that listeners are, you know, foundationally mentally aware of how this thing, the system is set up and working. So now I want to switch to, you know, based on your research, I try to ask people about potential solutions, right? So when you have such a system where property rights enforcement is weak and state capture is high, if I was putting Dr. Isani in front of the chief minister of Sindh, what would you ask him to uh, do in terms of reforms to shake up this structure? I think firstly, I think I would definitely, definitely advise him to enforce uh, property rights the best he can. 
Uh, and I think uh, they, I, I think they try to do it in extreme circumstances, but uh, the state is sometimes involved itself uh, in this weak enforcement of the property rights. And I think all institutions, whether this is the, uh, the politicians or the bureaucrats or sort of what we call um, uh, the establishment or the armed forces, I think they all should work towards sort of establishing uh, these property rights. That would be number one. I think number two would be um, a fair distribution of resources. I think that's also very difficult to achieve when you have very powerful interests uh, that um, sort of protect access to resources. I think that is very, very much needed as well. And of and, course- and Sorry to I, interrupt you there on that second point. The most, would you say that the most important uh, thing to fairly distribute is water or is it something else? I think, so water, uh, also, uh, I think lining of canals. Um, also, right now, for example, there is this locust outbreak, um, uh, not outbreak, but the locusts are coming and eating up the crop. And usually what is happening is that the, uh, the provincial government is, um, is looking towards the federal government to find a solution. The federal government is looking towards the provincial government to find a solution. And only in areas where people are well-connected um, that they are getting the places sprayed. Otherwise, people are having sort of um, um, using dishes and making a lot of loud noises to run, to make the locusts run away. And I think that's the best they can. So I think there is definitely not um, a policy towards uh, like, where do we need the resources the most? It's usually determined uh, by um, who knows the, uh, who has the best connection. Sometimes your best connection would be an army connection. Sometimes your best connection would be a politician. Um, sometimes it may be a bureaucrat. Um, and so in, at the end of the day, um, there is an unfair dis uh, distribution of resources. Um, um, and so I think uh, mainly, mainly here, I think this, of course, uh, needs to be looked at very carefully. And I think it'd be difficult just for the politicians to make this decision. I think this has to be across the board, uh, because I think sometimes, as we talked about before, the politicians themselves may be gaining um, something positive out of it. So it may not be in their interest to make such reforms. Yeah, and I think the the key takeaway, right, is like from a societal perspective, you have a situation in rural Sindh that can be extrapolated to different parts of Pakistan, particularly southern Punjab, where uh, we are at a place that first we need to understand the problems facing these parts and putting things in a broad bucket of, oh, it's feudalism or, oh, it's the elites that uh, are have captured the entire system or that the voters keep voting in the same set of people who are quote unquote crooks. Um, that's a very simplistic answer. And in reality, uh, the reality is far more complicated and far more nuanced than, than what we may debate about. And I think if you don't, my view is if you don't diagnose the problem properly, there is no way you can have reforms. For example, like coming out of this conversation, like the fact that everyone keeps harping about land reforms, well, land reforms aren't going to do much when there is no property rights enforcement, right? Um, yes. And it's not going to work. Um, 
So, uh, Mushtaba, a couple of other things. You are a professor, so uh, I want to put you on the spot. Like, if you were to recommend a couple of books to people uh, to understand, maybe something that you've researched or political science in general, like anything fascinating that people should pick up and read and pay attention to. Like, uh, with respect to rural sin or just generally? Either or, generally. I think this is a very interesting question generally uh, because uh, I think, so this is not related to like, so, so usually I also have been lucky enough to be invited uh, to Pakistan to give a lot of workshops in, uh, in, in different public universities. Um, so whether it be the University of Peshawar, the International Islamic University in Islamabad, or the Qaeda-e-Azam University in Islamabad, and their notion, notion of social science is is very different from my notion notion of social science. Um, and usually, I think political science uh, is thought to be political theory, um, and uh, they usually uh, tend to associate that with and people who um, cannot do the natural sciences or cannot do medicine or engineering go into social sciences. And, and so I think first, this mentality has to be corrected that social science is just limited to theory or um, I think because most of the work I do is very, very sort of um, empirically motivated and based on data and it's sometimes just applied statistics. Um, and I think, firstly, I think, again, to make better policy as well in Pakistan, I think first this mindset has to change that um, that social science uh, is not useful. I think first the mindset has to be made that social science is useful. And then, of course, I think I would simply tell them to first read, I think, um, an introduction to social science methodology or like any sort of methodology uh, so that they understand what social science basically is. I think there are certain departments that are good. I think that do a lot of good qualitative work, but I think there are very, very few departments in all of Pakistan. And I speak them again from anecdotal evidence, but I've been all over Pakistan giving workshops in public universities, but there are very few that work on sort of quantitative social science. And I think that is something that really, really needs to uh, come up in Pakistani universities and the general thinking. And I would just recommend them, please, please, um, yeah, read a methodology of the social sciences and try to then, um, with proper data, come out with possible policy alternatives. Because if you don't know, you can't just claim to know stuff, right? You can't just base everything on anecdotal evidence. Um, and I think that's the major, major problem that I see. I think you should have enough data to make a generalization, I think. And that's something that is uh, not present mostly in Pakistan. So what I, so think, I think I think we'll do is in the description below the video when we post it, I'll actually text you after this to put up two or three links to methodology yeah. articles or books that people should read. So we'll include yeah. that. And then secondly, like on rule of sin, like what is one book that you would say? Uh, That's that the very, so read? I haven't. So there are many books that, uh, that talk about different aspects of a rural sin, be it the, uh, the history of the peers in sin or uh, be it uh, some sort of um, um, sort of mostly historical. So I think there's very little social science work on sin. 
uh, very little quantitative social science work on sin. So I, I would myself, I don't know of a very good, I think off the top of my mind, uh, a good sort of social science uh, work on sort of quantitatively on sin. Um, and I think hopefully I can write more in the future on sin, uh, but I think it's an area where uh, I think sin will benefit a lot if people go into this field, uh, um, especially rural sin. I think there are a lot of people writing on urban issues um, and, um, um, and good works on but I think on rural sin, I, um, there are very few people. I, I can quote you some reports of the USIP or et cetera, uh, but very, um, I think a comprehensive work, I, I, uh, on, off the top of my head, I can't think of any. And I think that's really bad. Yeah, and I hope that if, you know, the hundred or so people that tune in for this every week, if some of them are thinking about social sciences and having a career in the social sciences, perhaps rules in this where you may want to look at for your research because it is a fascinating place. And if, as you said, there's not a lot of research that has happened on it uh, in a quantitative way, that's an area where you may want to build your expertise if you're looking into that field. So, um, definitely. Dr. Isani, thank you for joining us. This was a fascinating discussion. We'll, I'll ping you about the articles and include them down below in the description. And to everyone who tuned in, thank you for tuning in and listening to this conversation about Sindh and its rural economy and why property rights matter and why without solving for property rights, it's highly unlikely that you will see a lot of development in rural Pakistan. Um, if you like our show, please do subscribe to our YouTube channel or like our Facebook page and share this with your friends and family. We'll see you next week.